Turn with me this morning to Mark chapter 9. To continue our study in the book of Mark, we'll be starting at verse 14 and going through to verse 29. We have this little vignette of Jesus after he is coming down from the Mount Transfiguration. And this is uh, one of the most influential passages for me and in my personal walk with Christ. So I think it's a good one for us today. So let's, before we go to it, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask for his help with it. Our Lord Jesus, as we come to your word, we pray that you would help us because like the man in this passage, we believe what you have taught us. We believe in you. We trust in your name and what you're doing on this earth, but we also struggle with unbelief. And so as we come to your word, we pray that you would help with us, help us with our unbelief. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As I read through this passage, this deals with the demon possession, made me think of an episode of Star Trek, uh, The Next Generation, which is probably like our family's theme show. Um, they come in contact with a being named Armus. Armus was created by a previous race of people who were there, and this this race of people wanted to get rid of their evil, so they cast it all off onto this being named Armus. And he could only ever be evil. That was his nature. He couldn't be anything else. He he could only destroy and he could only rage against things. There was no purpose for him in the world other than just to be evil. And the crew of the Enterprise, of course, meet him and have to deal with it. Eventually they escape, because that's how every episode ends. Um, but in this particular episode, it fascinates me because it deals directly with this subject of evil. And in the Star Trek world, this evil, this armus, the evil is undirected, it's unfocused for years, just by itself, and just evil by itself. And then comes in contact with someone, of course, directs that evil at them, but is alone for hundreds of years and just remains angry all the time. In reality, though, evil does have purpose and direction. It does have volition, even. Satan represents this kind of evil, as do his minions, the demons. And so, in these entities that we're looking at, they aren't all powerful beings. They're ultimately under the power of God himself, and they act according to God's preordained decree, and ultimately they act in such a way that God gets the glory for what they're doing. And we're going to see that front and center in this story today. We're going to read about this demon possession. It gives a great picture not only how this demon treats the boy that it's possessing, which helps us to see evil, but also Change, it also shows how people are changed as a result of this meeting with Jesus. I think in so many ways we also see our own struggles in life here. While we don't have to worry about demon possession, we definitely struggle against the evil of this world, for sure. We struggle with unbelief even in our own hearts. Many times we are the unbelieving generation that Jesus has to bear with, that he speaks of here. We come to this text, let us see Jesus as the one who ultimately can deliver us from this struggle. So as we look at the text, I will divide it into three main ideas or points. First, the skin of evil. 
Secondly, the difficulty of belief. And then last, the call of the Savior. And so with me, or with that, we stand together in the honor of reading God's holy word. Mark chapter 9, starting at verse 14 and through verse 29. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and the scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the, immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you and for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out and they were not able And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy and fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked the father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into the fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe. Help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that the crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Amen. This is God's word. You may be seated. So just for a bit of context first, remember last week we looked at that first part of chapter 9 which deals with the event known as the transfiguration of Jesus when Jesus was up on this mountain and he, he appeared to be changed in front of the disciples, his clothing turned white and Peter, James and John were the only disciples with him. Moses and Elijah then show up, remember from the Old Testament, and they speak with Jesus about his work of redemption, would have loved to have been in part of that conversation. The fallout from that event shows us the heart of the disciples as they struggled with this whole idea of Jesus being there with them and these, it caused lots of questions and they showed their own struggles with unbelief. This experience would change each of them. We see that in their writings. Each of them write about it. But even in the midst of it, it was important for the voice of the Father to come down to them and say, this is my son. Listen to him. The father did not take for granted that these men who had walked with Jesus and saw all that he had been doing were going to be able to grasp this simple concept of listen to Jesus. And so he came and he spoke to them in a very audible way. I think this passage that we're getting ready to get into shows us the application of that idea. That brings me to the first point, the, the skin of evil. Verses 14 
through 17 just kind of show us this, the context here. They came, when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them. The scribes were arguing with them. Immediately the crowd saw him. They were amazed and they ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing with them about? So you get the picture here. Jesus and his three inner circle, Peter, James, and John, they're walking down the mountain after this event of transfiguration. And when they come down the mountain, they find the rest of the disciples there, and there's a crowd around them, and they're arguing with this group of people that is known as the scribes, which, you know, we've seen run-ins with them in the Pharisees in the past. And so Jesus finds his disciples arguing with the scribes. Now, we don't know the mind of Christ here in this particular instance, but I'd like to think that he was a little bit proud in seeing his disciples stand up for themselves against these spiritual authorities. There's a time to keep your mouth shut, but there's a time to assert yourself with the truth. And the disciples here must have thought that this was such a time to assert themselves with the truth, even with Jesus being away. But this pride was short-lived once he realized what they were arguing about. We see some of his disappointment in 19. We'll get into that in a little bit. Notice what they're arguing about, though. Jesus asked them, what are you arguing about? What are you discussing? And he's, and then someone in the crowd, teacher, I brought my son to you for he was, a, he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth. He grinds his teeth. He becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out. They were not able. So they're arguing about the fact that the disciples were not able to cast this demon out. We read this later in verse 22. The disciples asked Jesus, why weren't we able to do this? It must have been really difficult for Jesus to have to endure this. And imagine just being there as a person, too. Imagine seeing this sort of thing from that's going on with this little boy that's being brought up to Jesus, having to endure this as a person. This is the way of evil. It doesn't do anything but destroy. That's all it can do. By its very nature, it destroys things. It breaks things. If it builds anything at all, it only builds them so that it can destroy something else. It seeks its own good, which is no good at all. Evil is a really odd thing. It takes joy in the sufferings of others, but it can't take any joy at all. It feels nothing for anything or anyone. Evil may even seem to be counterproductive at times because it seems like it would destroy itself in order to wreak havoc on others. And we kind of see this going on here. This demon, it's not like this demon doesn't know who Jesus is. We see that in a minute. As soon as Jesus walks up, the demon goes crazy, right? He knows exactly who Jesus is. Don't hear me talking about evil as if it's a thing that exists outside of creation. I've heard a lot of people talk about evil as if it's this uh, kind of amorphous entity that just kind of exists in the air. That's not what evil is. It does exist in creation. But it's not something that we can decide that we just want to get rid of like the people in Star Trek did. There's only one cure for evil and that cure exists outside of the creation itself. It comes from God alone. I think it's important for believers to see the nature of evil here. Because we shouldn't be surprised when we see it. What is evil doing to this little boy? It's throwing him on the ground. It's causing him to grind his teeth. He becomes rigid. It throws him in the fire in order to destroy him. 
We never want to get to a place where it doesn't affect us anymore. We don't want to become desensitized to the appearance of evil. I think that's really easy to do, especially nowadays when it's literally on everything that we watch and see. However, it shouldn't surprise us either. We don't need to be completely shocked when we see evil rear its head. We'd like to believe that we can put a band-aid on evil things, right? It's all, I mean, it's all our society is into now. We pass some policy or elect some official or ban something. And then all of a sudden, everything's going to get better. No, that's not how this works. In the end, with each new person that is born, there is born another person who, outside of Christ, cannot be righteous, cannot seek good, cannot seek after God, is not good. Remember, we studied that in Romans 3. And so we don't get to a point where all of a sudden good people are starting to be born because of the good things that we're doing. That's not how this works. If we're not careful as believers, it'd be really easy for us to despair because of this. It'd be really easy for us, easy for us to look around the world and think, man, it's such a horrible, horrible place. We have nothing but despair. So much of this book of Mark, in fact, is dedicated to this struggle. I think the next passage really helps us show this struggle and even its solution for us very clearly. And that brings me to the next point, the difficulty of belief. So we find out the disciples are unable to drive out the demon. We find out they're arguing over this demon-possessed boy. And again, we figure out they're arguing about this idea that the disciples, for some reason can't cast the demon out. We don't know why the scribes wanted to argue with them about that. But notice in verse 19 what Jesus' response to this is. Oh, faithless generation. He's not talking about the scribes here. How long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. Speaking of the little boy. They were contending with the scribes, and that was a good thing, but their argument was about this idea that they couldn't do what they should have been able to do. And for Jesus, this was a disappointment. And it wasn't as if the disciples didn't believe at all. So we don't need to see this as a zero to 100 kind of thing, right? There's not belief or complete unbelief. The disciples absolutely did believe in him. They followed him around. They defended him. They were currently defending him. Right? They were defending Jesus. It's obvious that they cared about him. It's obvious that they wanted to do what he wanted them to do, that they wanted to believe what he wanted them to believe. The disappointment of, of Jesus here is the disappointment of a God who has contended with people who struggled with belief all the way since Abram. I mean, remember when Moses was on Mount Sinai and he had just received the tablets, he had just received the Ten Commandments that God wrote with his very finger. He walks down and what does he see? He sees the people dancing around a golden calf. This isn't new for the Lord to see this sort of thing. We have more of the same from the father of this demon-possessed boy. Notice Jesus says, how long has this been happening? We get this this really sad account here. It often casts him into the fire and into the water to destroy him. And notice this next thing that the man says. And he's talking to Jesus, and surely by now he's heard of this Jesus, right? But if, if you can do anything, have compassion on us. Help us. 
Why did the man even bring him to Jesus if he didn't think he could do anything? Jesus calls him on it, of course. If you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. Jesus calls this man to believe. All the while, who's watching this? The disciples, the ones that were up on the mountain with him who struggled with belief, right? The ones who were down at the bottom who struggled with belief, who Jesus just got through calling a faithless generation. He calls this man to believe. He calls everyone standing there to believe. If you just believe, all things are possible. And this man's response, verse 24, is the summary of my life. And so, so many believers that I've counseled with and talked with over the years, and you sitting here, you probably resonate with this as well. Jesus says to him, if you can, if all things are possible for him who believes, immediately the father of the child cried out, I believe, help my unbelief. Is there any statement that better sums up our lives as believers as this one unnamed man shares with us here? I don't think so. For me, this is the very picture of the struggle of at least I live for sure. I want to clarify a few things here. When Jesus says all things are possible for one who believes, we really have to be careful with a statement like this because it's very loaded. It might be easy for us to take this and put it on a keychain or a candy bar or something like that and think that it applies to our athletic competition or whether or not we're going to get a raise or we're going to get a good grade in math or something dumb like that. Jesus cares about our competitions and he cares about our raises and he cares about our math tests, but he's painting a bigger picture for us here, a way bigger picture for us here. Why are all things possible if I believe? What does my belief have to do with anything? Not because I'll then be able to conquer my enemies because my belief is so good or I'll be able to climb every obstacle because I'm so good at believing. Because then I'm believing in myself. It's not those. It's because I believe in the one who can do those things and has done those things. Like so much in our faith, what does it have to do with? Not me. We've been studying this in Romans. So that, so that we can't boast, right? It has to do with God and His glory. It has nothing to do with us. We believe in the one who has done it for His people. And we'll continue to do that. We'll continue to intercede on our behalf. He continues to sanctify us as we read from the Shorter Catechism today. This isn't a passage about getting better in our faith. This isn't a passage about realizing that you'll never be good enough. This is a passage about realizing that Jesus is good enough. He's always good enough. So then our struggle isn't, I need to be a better Christian. Our struggle is, Lord Jesus, help my unbelief. Notice the man here. What is his response? He doesn't say, I believe And I'll get to work on my unbelief. He says, Jesus, help my unbelief. The disciples kind of echo this in verse 28. Why couldn't we cast it out? They want to know. What were we doing wrong? Did we not do the right thing? Did we not hold our feet just right? Was there something going on? And how does Jesus answer them? This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. What is prayer? It's a verbal acknowledgement to the God, to God, and it says, help me. You don't pray, Jesus, I promise I'll get better at casting out demons. Instead, you pray, Jesus, help me do this. 
Maturity in Christ is getting better and getting to the place where you can say, like this man, help my unbelief. I talk to struggling Christians a lot, even some who struggle with belief in one way or another. They look at their unbelief and they'll say, well, I'm obviously not a Christian. That's the conclusion that they'll come to with any kind of struggle with unbelief. That since there's this this shade of unbelief, then I must be a a non-Christian altogether. And what is the response then? How do how do they usually respond to that? Well, I just need to 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 dig deeper, or I need to look back to a time when I really believed and kind of recreate that whole circumstance as if that's something you can actually do. They'll just do just about anything other than call out to Jesus and say, "Help me, help my unbelief." And we have to be careful. Because if we ever get to a place when we say, I don't have any unbelief, we're lying to ourselves. The pride that would make that kind of statement demonstrates a drifting away from Jesus and a faith in ourselves instead. We definitely increase our faith over the years because of the work of Christ and his work in us. But this side of heaven will always struggle. We don't read in the New Testament that we're going to get to a place where we just kind of always believe and always get it. Uh, we don't. You read that from the Apostle Paul. He always struggled. There was always parts that he didn't get. The answer to that struggle isn't just get better at being a Christian. Come on, why don't you get it? The answer is always the same. Lord Jesus, help my unbelief. And then watch and see how he answers that prayer. And that brings me to the last point. The call of the Savior. Verses 25 and 26. And when when Jesus saw the crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He is dead. So Jesus calls the demon out of this boy and it obeys. Jesus, or it doesn't obey because Jesus is better at this stuff than the disciples were. Note that. It's not, it doesn't have to do with Jesus' skill as a, uh, as a demon dispossessor. It obeys him because Jesus is his creator. This wasn't a suggestion. Hey, you think you could leave for us? Jesus didn't ask the demon to leave. He told it to leave. Demon got its parting shots in and then it left. What happens next is a picture of redemption. And I'm thankful for it. Because Jesus, again, could have done this much differently. But I think it was a very deliberate choice in the way that he did this. Rather than the boy jumping right up and starting to dance, he lay there like a corpse. He looked dead. The people around thought he was dead. They looked at him and said, he's dead. For whatever reason, Jesus saw fit to have the boy lay there for a time. So that he could follow up with the next part. Look at verse 27. So just imagine the situation. This little boy just got through convulsing. He's now laying still. Everyone says he's dead. Jesus walks up to him, takes him by the hand, lifts him up, and he arose. What a picture of our own redemption. 
who once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons and daughters of disobedience, but God being rich in mercy, because of the great love which he had loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together in Christ. The picture of Jesus grabbing this boy by the hand, having him stand up is the picture of our own redemption. It wasn't, okay, little boy, get up, try harder, do better. He took him by the hand and he arose. Does this mean the little boy would never stumble again? Does it mean that he'll always be found standing? No. But no one could take away the fact that Jesus took him by the hand and he arose. It's much the same for us here in Christ. Looking at what Jesus says here. When we say to him, I believe... That doesn't mean that you're never going to have to then look at him again and say, Lord, help my unbelief. In fact, if you aren't doing that, I'd say that you're further from him than the ones who daily look to him and say, Lord, help me. If you're struggling in your faith today, you're not alone in that struggle. 2020 hasn't been easy on anyone. And in those times when we think it's totally up to us to feel safe and secure on the inside. We lose sight of the fact that the very Son of God became man and stood in our places. He was nailed to the cross so that you and I could say, I believe. As we walk through this life, we all struggle. It's a part of the walk with Christ. It's a part of our walk. When it comes to those who look on, there will be many who will say, look at those Christians. They don't have their lives together at all. And that's when we can look in them and say, you don't even know the half of it. I need help every day. We can use our weakness to point them to the one who is never weak, ever, who is strong enough for every one of our unbelieving days. So as in conclusion, Christians believe in Christ, your redeemer, your savior, the one who lifts up your head. Along with that, pray daily to Jesus, Lord, help my unbelief. Watch and be amazed as he answers that prayer, not only in your life, but in those that you minister to as well. Let's go to him in prayer. Our Lord Jesus, as we come to you, we pray and we declare we believe, but we also pray help our unbelief. We struggle in this knowing that you have saved us, but knowing that we are not yet with you. And so we pray, help us with this struggle. Help us to daily rely on you. We never will get to a point where we don't need to do that, even when we're in your presence. And so, Lord, help us. Help our unbelief. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.